Our passage today is from John 4, 1 through 15. John 4, 1 through 15. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had, have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. Can we try it one more time? Hallelujah, his word is good. Let's say that together. Ready? Hallelujah, his word is good. It is good. And it's the words of life. You know, and, we're, and Cindy gave the invitation for you to go to the link tree and download a picture. Um, we don't want you to go through the motions on that invitation. We really want you to put it into your photos. We want you to scroll back through your photos when you're bored at work and you're looking at, you know, something and you go, oh yeah, Trinity. Oh yes, Easter's coming. Oh yes, this God at the center of Christianity has the words of life. And what we just read is, if we're in relationship with him, we'll never thirst again. And man, I got a lot of thirsty friends who are searching for life. And their outside looks good, but I know them, and I want them to encounter something bigger than themselves. An invitation may or may not be the thing that brings them into your orbit or to our church. That's actually not the point. The point is that you would begin to pray with and for them, and that they might have a chance, maybe through you, to encounter this God. Do you believe that he's worth encountering? That he's worth sending like 10 or 15 invitations to say, I don't care if you come to my church, but there's meaning out there. If you ever want to talk about Jesus, let's talk. He allows anybody and everybody into his orbit. That's what this series is about. Messy people, faithful God. When I invited my neighbor to church not too long ago, he's older, he's in his 80s, his health is not well. I've had a, a couple of interactions with him, sat with him in his living room multiple times, when I asked him to come to church, he said to me, and I quote, oh, you don't want me at your church. The church will burn down if I walk through those front doors. And I said, bless you, man. I get it. I get it. The church is for you, John, because Jesus was burned down. 
so that you can walk through these doors and feel free. And that's the gospel. Messy people, complicated storylines, faithful God. That's what we're looking at, all right? John 4, 1 through 15 today. It's a much longer story. So if you've got a Bible, you want to keep it open to John chapter 4, I'm going to take you through some different parts of this story throughout. Let me ask you this question as we begin. Who do you give your time to? Or how do you prioritize your week and your schedule? If your time were limited and access to you were highly sought after, if the entire world seemed hungry for some of your attention and for some of your time, who would you prioritize? Jesus has many conversations in the New Testament. This one from John chapter 4 happens to be the longest conversation in the entire New Testament. And Jesus, he's not with a politician, he's not with a ruler, he's not with an influencer. This is with a Samaritan woman, someone who is largely considered second class by most of Jesus' contemporaries and certainly by larger Jewish society. Jesus' longest conversation, complex, broken background, a messy person that Jesus spends an inordinate amount of time with. Now, this conversation, if you had your Bible open, would be contrasted with John chapter 3, where Jesus has a conversation with a man by the name of Nicodemus, who is considered by some writers the ultimate insider. He's religious. He's got power. He's got clout. He's got a name. He's respected. It's contrasted with this woman who is the ultimate outsider. She's a Samaritan. She's marginalized. She's not welcome. She's unclean. You have this contrast between conversations. Nicodemus, ultimate insider. Samaritan woman, ultimate outsider. Jesus says the same thing to both of them. You know what he says to them? You've got to be born again or this thing's not going to work. He says, are you thirsty? then let me give you some living water deep on the inside so that you don't have to keep looking for things on the outside. He says it to the insider. He says it to the uh, outsider. He says it to all of us. This is what it means to come into contact with him. He says you can look your whole life, but until you have an interaction and a a communication and a connection to me, you're going to keep searching. But I want to offer you something that's going to allow you to never thirst again. Curious at all? Like, like, can I take Jesus at his word? Does he still mean that? If you've been in the church a long time, you should be leaning in and go, is he serious? Yes, he's serious. Right. Three things today. Number one, spiritual thirst. Number two, disruptive love. And number three, redemptive overflow. So three things, spiritual thirst, disruptive love, redemptive overflow. That's where I'm going to take you. Look again at verse 4. Under spiritual thirst. Verse 4 says, And he had to pass through Samaria, and he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Let me stop there. Jesus, as you're going to notice in this story, he is oh so very human. Not kind of human. He didn't just kind of look human on the outside. Jesus is very human. 
He's so much like you and me. John tells us that he was, quote, wearied from his journey. Jesus is physically tired. He's thirsty. He's going to walk from the region of Judea and the city of Jerusalem. He's going back up north to the region of Galilee. Right, he's being kind of pushed that way by some of the forces. It's about a 60-mile walk. So Jesus is weary. He's probably two-thirds of the way there. He's going through Samaria. But then John also tells us this kind of strange statement that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, for you and me, when we read that, not a big deal. doesn't seem like it's strange. But for the original reader, this would have been quite strange. They would have been shocked by the statement that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. This may have been like saying you were in K-Town in L.A. and you wanted to go over to the other side of the city, to the Arts District, and you had to pass through Skid Row. You're going to go, no, 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 no. There's, there's other ways to the other side of the city. You don't have to stop in Skid Row. No, you don't have to go that way. And Jesus' response would have been, yes, I do. I have to pass through Samaria. The Jews and the Samaritans, they have a long, very unique history of animosity towards one another. The Samaritans were in many ways despised as inferior. They were racially compromised. They were syncretists in their beliefs. They were theologically heretical. Their disdain went back to the time of the Babylonian exile. When certain Jews were left in the land, while most were deported to Babylon, those Jews who stayed, they intermarried with many of the local pagan Canaanite tribes. They adopted many of their beliefs and their traditions, and they melded them with their own Jewish beliefs. This is what's going on with the Samaritan people. When the Jews returned from exile, the Samaritans were rejected, right? These people are rejected as now compromised, they're heretical, they've intermarried, they're impure for their ethnic and their theological heritage that they are now espousing. So this is where the animosity comes from. A long time ago, Babylonian exile, some of the Jews stay, they're, in, they're intermarry, and all of their beliefs are here compromised. And so at noon on this journey, Jesus has made it to Samaria and to Jacob's well, and the text tells us that he is weary and he is thirsty and a solitary Samaritan woman approaches the well, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Now, for this woman, at this point in the story, she would have been completely taken aback. She would have been very surprised. She's expecting to be ignored by Jesus, or she's expecting to be demeaned by this Jewish man. She doesn't know who he is, but verse 8 gives us some insight into the storyline between these people. What does verse 8 say? It says that the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And therefore, she wonders why this Jewish man is asking her for a drink. Why would he want to defile himself by touching their cups and putting his mouth on their instruments? Why would he do this? And in asking for a drink from this woman, Jesus crosses all sorts of boundaries and barriers. He crosses the racial and the ethnic boundary he crosses the gender boundary because men weren't supposed to speak to women in public who were not their spouse, their wife. And he crosses the, the moral boundary because this Samaritan woman is considered compromised and she's unclean. But let me say that Jesus is not bound by these man-made rules and regulations. 
Here is somebody who has left heaven for earth, and he says, I'm not going to be bound by all of your regulations like race or gender or clean and unclean designations. These are not restrictive for me. So these temporary things that we've put in place between societies, Jesus says, I'm able to go into that space in order to rehumanize this person because he wants a connection with her. Jesus is always willing to bypass boundaries because he wants a connection with you. And this woman is shocked at Jesus' request. She knows that this is not normal. This is not literally kosher. It shouldn't be allowed. And so she says to him this, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? And I love Jesus' response. What does he say? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I mean, kind of a strange statement. She doesn't know who this Jewish guy is. She's going, you're here for a drink. That's weird. You're sitting here telling me about living water. Who do you think you are? And she kind of responds to him sarcastically in the moment. She's like, well, do you think that you're greater than our father Jacob? To which Jesus replies, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He goes, I got something good for you. I've got something that's going to spring up inside of your soul. I'm calling it living water, but it is a source of more meaning, more substance, more identity shaping than anything you've ever had. He's calling it living water, but it begs the question, What's the living water in your life? What's giving you meaning? What's pouring substance into your life, in your soul, in your week, in your routine? Who do you prioritize and why do you prioritize them? What's going on in your life? Where do you pull in the source of living water? Christian or non-Christian, what's the source? Is part of Jesus' question and his conversation. He goes, I know you got to pull something in. What is it for you? Is it that fantastic career? Is it that end of year banquet that you can't stop thinking about where finally you are going to be publicly recognized for what you have accomplished within your business and your company? Is it being able to introduce yourself as a doctor or a lawyer or a manager or a director or a team lead? Is it a specific cause? Is it something political? Is it your family? That makes life worth living for you? Is it successful children? Is it what you save that gives your life substance and meaning? We think to ourselves, if we can just secure that thing, if we can be in that relationship, if we can accomplish this thing, I'm going to have something poured into my life and it's going to give me substance. It's going to give me meaning. Then I'll know that I've made it. Then I'll know I'm special. Then I'll know I've got value. Listen, here's the principle. We are always looking for something outside of us to pull to the inside of us in order to tell ourselves that we're okay. But here's what Tim Keller writes. There is nothing outside of you that can satisfy the deep thirst that is deep down inside of you. There's nothing out there. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you something that becomes a source of substance inside of you. 
so you can function properly and healthily and not abuse things and relationships and people trying to squeeze life and meaning out of them. He goes, I am the source. You're looking for it outside. Every human's bringing it in. He goes, but I'm going to put it inside of you. Only he can put that there. Rebecca Pippert, she writes, where did you go to find lasting happiness? And where is the power to help us reach it? In this search, most of us have had the experience of discovering new causes. They last a while, bringing a certain zest and promise. Eventually, we go on to the next thing. Somehow, the small print of the reality never matches the billing in the headline. The irony is that when these securities fail and our life falls apart, we don't stop to ask, what is big enough to build my life upon? Instead, we tend to say, that just proves there is no God or my life wouldn't be this miserable. It rarely occurs to us that our lives may be miserable precisely because we have not trusted the one source of security we were meant to build on. We are living in a spiritually exhausted culture. We have removed God from our storyline. We have replaced it with generic spirituality. And the result is that we are more preoccupied, we are more hurried, we are more anxious, depressed, and unhappy than we have ever been as a society. Now, we have more luxuries. We have more free time. We have more disposable income. We have more access to information and truth than any generation prior to us. And yet, we are completely lost. And part of it is because we have been told that there is something outside of us that we can pull into the center that will give our life meaning. And you know what happens? Because we have been created really smart. We are the smartest creatures on the planet. When you pull things into the center of your life and they don't make sense and they don't work, you know what happens is you enter into a cycle that begins with the question, maybe there's something wrong with me. Because everybody's finding, at least it looks like on the outside, hope and happiness, but I can't seem to find it. So if they're telling me there's solutions to life, things that are going to give life meaning, they're going to bubble up inside of me and make me content. If I can't find it, there must be something wrong with me, which then begins the cycles of shame and hiding and addictions, even amongst the upwardly mobile, accomplished, and the educated. That's what happens. Listen to what Tim Keller writes. He says, something gets in the way of our hearing what Jesus is talking about. And I think it's that most of us aren't able to recognize our soul thirst for what it is. As long as you think there's a pretty good chance that you will achieve some of your dreams, as long as you think you have a shot at success, you experience your inner emptiness as drive and your anxiety as hope. And so you can remain almost completely oblivious to how deep your thirst is actually is. Now, most of us tell ourselves that the reason we remain unfulfilled is because we simply haven't been able to achieve our goals. And so we can live almost our entire lives without admitting to ourselves the depth of our spiritual thirst. You see what he's saying? He's saying it's really easy to baptize ambition and drive, but not notice what's actually going on is my soul is thirsty. And Jesus says, I know, and I would like to give you something that will satisfy deep within. Stop pulling outside things in. I'm coming for you, right? Part one, spiritual thirst. Let me take you to part two, disruptive love. Look at verse 15. 
Verse 15 says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Good observation at that point in the story. You don't know me. You're talking about living water. I think that uh, I'm going to demean you, kind of be sarcastic about you think you're greater than Jacob. He gave us this well. He peers right into her heart and her soul. Let me talk about this for a moment. Most modern definitions of love simply ask you to see and accept. This is a modern secular definition of love. See me, observe me, and accept me for who I am. The Bible's not completely antagonistic to seeing and accepting in any way, but this has become such a trite, light version of love. See me, affirm me, accept me. We essentially are demanding unequivocal support, and if you push against me, then you're not for me, and you're bigoted. But deep inside, I actually think we know that's not real love. That's not how real love works. Biblical love is different. It's humble, it's costly, and biblical love always requires sacrifice. Real love always disrupts. Has your life been disrupted at all over the last couple of years? If you're in the room, the answer is a resounding, yeah, it has been. Things have come at me. We have shared them as a society, but I got personal things coming at me, things that are hard, things with my family, things in my marriage, things with my children. There are disruptive forces coming at me, and sometimes we're not even prepared when God's disruptive love comes into our life. And I want you to be ready to experience God's disruptive love. That's what love is like. Doesn't just affirm, but it comes in to disrupt your life to love you. Now, right here in this part of the story, it seems like a non sequitur. I mean, Jesus is here talking about living water and something springing up inside of this woman's life. But then he says to her, Go and call your husband. Why is Jesus talking about her personal life? Why's he got to go there? Why's he got to go to her husband? Well, she replies to him, honestly, I have no husband. Jesus says, you're right in saying you have no husband. You've had five of them, and the person you're living with right now is not your husband. Here is the connection between those. You ready? If you want to take Jesus up on his offer of living water, say, man, I've been searching and I need it. If you're offering it, I'll take it. He is always going to take you to the place of examination of the parts of your life, the parts of your story where you have been pulling in a stagnant source of water, brackish, not working, unhealthy, and he's going to take you there to expose it so that he can lead you to the living water. That's what he's doing with this woman. This isn't a break in the conversation. He goes, man, I got something so good for you. It's going to fill you up from the inside. His real question is, what have you been letting quench your thirst? And he looks right into her storyline. And Jesus knows at that moment what she has been living for, living off of, is the water of relationship with men. You've been married five times, hoping that those men would be sufficient for your life, that they would give you meaning. 
it's not enough. You're going to keep searching. He goes, I want to give you something better. As an example, how does this work? Why does Jesus have to go there into her personal life? Let me consider what we're going to call the professional athlete clause that goes into many contracts. I have unfortunately never received this in my contract. But it's called the don't ski, never bungee jump, right? You are forbidden from skydiving clause. Why do they do that? Because they say, because you are valuable to this organization. We need all of you to be intact. We need all of you for this relationship to work. So no bungee jumping, no skydiving, no skiing. A better example than the professional athlete clause is probably marriage. When you get married, what you are saying is all the old flings and all the future flings, it's over. For this thing to work, we have to trust each other. I have to know you're for me. I have to know that in your heart, I'm number one, and that in my heart, you're number one. Like, you are the the human I have given my life to. I'm committed to you. There's nothing going to divide us. For it to work, Danielle needs to know that I love her, and she's the only love in my life at a human level. She's the only woman for me, right? This is how it works, and that's how it works in Christianity. Jesus says, hey, man, I would love to fill you up. You want that? Let's go into your life and let's examine the places and the spaces and the things that you have allowed to be the living water source for you. What are you living off of? What are you living off of? What's going on in your world? And it might seem on the outset that this is pretty simple. Like All she needs to do is get a better relationship as if it's on the surface. Can't you tell that she's tried? And she has looked and looked and looked. She's like, that guy's different. Oh, it didn't work out. He's going to be different. It didn't work out. He's going to fill me up. He's kind. That one down to five. Now to six. Things on the outside. But the issue is always the heart, isn't it? It's always the human heart. It's never on the surface. Here's what Paul Tripp says. The heart is the causal center of your personhood. And this means that people do what they do because of what's in their hearts. Situations don't cause you to do what you do, even though they're important. People don't cause you to do what you do. Locations don't cause you to do what you do. Your heart does. That's the Bible's humbling bottom line. Inside of you is a control center. It is called the heart. And it is paramount that we understand what we are feeding off of because this is the nature of sin, but it's also the nature of why Jesus came to our planet. Because I am prone, just like the other seven and a half billion of us, to pull something else to the center of my life and to let it be the source of my meaning, of my happiness, of my satisfaction. It's just what's in me and it's what's in you. And if I cannot acknowledge that that is part of the human heart's issue, then the gospel doesn't make a lot of sense. But if I'm not paying attention to it in the day-to-day, then Jesus is never going to be personal. I'll never apprentice under him. I'll sing about him on Sunday. I'll read a verse or two in special seasons. But he will not be living water for you. He will be a distant deity that you respect. But until you see, man, I am prone to pull it in. It's who I am. It's who we all are. 
the gospel will not be personal for you. Jesus died for that. For that part of your life and for that part of your story. And he says, and I've got something better for you. I'd like to satisfy you. The question is, how and why could he do that? Why could Jesus fill this woman up with the hydrating love of God, the disruptive force of God's love for her? How and why did this happen in her life? You know why it happened? It's actually much more simple than you think. Number one, it's because Jesus was weary from his journey. That's why. This is why they had a conversation that day. It's because Jesus was thirsty, which means the reason she has the disruptive love break into her life is because Jesus was human. And he had to go through Samaria that day. He says, I have come for this woman. She's going to expect to be demeaned, to be disrespected. I have come to disrupt her life with love. She has an interaction with him because he's thirsty, because there's human. And there is another time that we will meet Jesus when he's thirsty, isn't there? It's when he's upon the cross. This God says, I will hydrate you. I will fill you up. But in order to do that, I have to be parched. I'm going to lay my life down for this woman. For her to be filled up, Jesus had to be spilled out. He had to become human. But he did it so that you could experience this thing inside of you, not outside of you, that will well up into an eternal spring and never dry up. That's his promise. It will never stop pouring meaning, life, love, substance into your heart. But it would take his life. It would take his death. It would take the love of God in the gospel. Right? This is what we believe as Christians, his life for yours. Let me take you to this last part. Spiritual thirst, the disruptive love of God that is a waterfall of affection for you. You know it because he was human. You know it because of the cross. And then thirdly and quickly, what I'm going to call redemptive overflow in this woman's life. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and they were coming to him. And this woman who was afraid of the crowd, she is, at, she is at the well at noon because she wants to avoid all of her friends. She wants to avoid the gossip. She's got a story attached to her. She's got a complicated past. She is avoiding eye contact. She happens to be at the same time as this Jewish man's there. She's probably rolling her eyes. He sees her and loves her, pours redemptive, disruptive love into her life. And you see this incredible reversal in her life. She was avoiding, and now she is running after the same people that she was avoiding. This is what the gospel did in her life, is it began to totally change her. She didn't want anything to do with the townspeople. And now she goes, can you come with me and see the man who told me everything about me and he didn't condemn me? That's the key. He saw all of the dirt and he loved me. Can you believe? Could, could this be the Christ? Come and see. Right? Redemptive overflow out of her life. Guess what? You don't have to send anybody an Easter invitation picture. 
at all. God does not care. It's redemptive overflow. That's all it is. It's redemptive overflow, man. God is real. He's pouring love into my life. Yeah, my friend, I'm scared that they're going to think I'm a wacko and a weirdo. But guess what? By faith, I'm going to press send on that because I want people to know that in the desert of their life, they can stop looking for something to pull in. Jesus is going to put it at the center. That's all it is. That's what Christianity is. That's what faithfulness is. That's what coming to church is. It earns you zero spirituality points. Jesus thirsted for you. What are you going to add to that? It's redemptive overflow out of your life. The places in your life where you are fearful and scared, they will be redeemed. They will be changed. You will interact differently, and it will spill out into your world. That's what you see with this woman. The verse says, so the woman left her water jar, went into town, and said, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. I want that to pour out of your life. Doesn't matter how complex. It doesn't matter what you're carrying. This woman has a history to deal with. Jesus did not eliminate her past. What he did is he said, There's no shame upon your life. There's no shame upon your story. I am faithful to you, even if your life is complex and complicated. We will work together, we will figure some of that stuff out. Hard things happen. But in the desert of her life, in the desert of her soul, water started to flow. Do you want it? Let me show you this little video. I'm going to close and pray. It's like a 15-second video taken by a master or a videographer, yours truly. Okay. I'm not sure if we're able to get this, but if we can, if not, I'll just play. All right. Check out the slow motion, the greenery, the redemptive overflow of water flowing into the streets. Those are dirt streets. I get it. Those are dirt roads. This is on top of a mountain near my house on Wednesday when it was raining. I said, I'm going on a run today. And this place is generally parched. We live in a desert near the sea. There's never water here. But this turned into a waterfall in a place where it was generally dry, cracked, and weary. This is what Jesus can do in your life. You don't bring to him your goodness. He brings to you his goodness. He's not after your morality. He says, I was broken for you. You got to come to the gospel. You got to come broken, weary, and needed. And he goes, that will happen in your life. I don't care how dry it is. I don't care how big the drought has been. Do you believe that he could do that? Do you believe he still does that? And let's pray that we believe and experience that God will overflow in the deserts of your soul as you come to him today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are hungry for disruptive love. We are wearied by loves that don't fill us up. We are burdened to find something that will satisfy our spiritual thirst. And we believe that you are that source. It's a strange thing to think about a God whom we can't see. He's not physical in the same way. He's not going to sit down with us at coffee to believe that he can put something in us that will fill us. But this is what it means to know the Spirit of God. 
that he wants to fill us with life, that he wants to fill us with the gospel. Disruptive love can be hard, but you are faithful to heal, to produce springs of living water that will well up to eternal life, not because of what we've done, but because Jesus was thirsty at a well in Samaria where he had to go and to a cross where he set his face so that we might be filled up from the inside. May this God move right here upon this room. Lord, we hold our hearts out. We may even hold our hands up as an act of faith, saying, disrupt my life. I have pulled so many things to the center, and I am wearied, and I am still thirsty. Jesus, be sufficient. Just go right into that place of hiding, that place of hurt, that place of shame. Bring others alongside of us that we might be relieved, that it might stay in the room today, that things can stay here and not go back with us. Oh, Jesus, do even that, we pray. In your heavenly, your healing, your personal, your wearied, your crucified but resurrected name, we pray. Amen. If you would look with me in your worship guide, I'm going to lead you today through uh, this communion meal and our chance to come together to celebrate this. If you want to look on the inside, right side on the bottom, it'll also be on the screen. I'm going to lead us with these words of invitation. Let us boldly proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, the gifts of God for the people of God. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way and on the same night, he took a cup and he said, this is a cup of a, a new type of relationship. It's one that's built on grace. It's not built on you. You don't have to perform to drink of this. I am performing. I am going to the cross. This is for you. You are set free. Let me put something in your heart. It is my life. It is my spirit. It's my forgiveness. Do this also in remembrance of me. If you are here, you call yourself a Christian. Uh, you are somebody who has accepted the love and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He is at the center of your life, albeit imperfectly. You are in process. Then this meal is for you. If you're here today learning about Christianity, still have a lot of questions. We have all been there. It's a wonderful place for you to be. We want you to keep coming. We want you to reflect on your need of the gospel, what you've heard today. And maybe today is the day you bring Jesus in, and then this meal becomes part of participation in the family. If that happens, please let us know. We would love to think with you and come alongside of you. Let the Spirit of God move as you take this meal. But we ask you not to take if you're not a yet a Christian and follower of Jesus. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then you're going to be welcomed forward. There are going to be three lines, center and the side. If you would take the bread and the cup and go back to your seat, we'll partake together in just a moment. Lord Jesus, would you meet with us even through this meal, maybe especially through this meal? It's a chance for us to think deeply about our love, our loves, what we've placed at the center. Come and be the disruptive gospel merciful, peaceful force that you've always been. 
pound on our hearts and fill us up. In Jesus' name, amen.